So we've been working through a series of lessons on the book of James. And today we peel open a titanic passage from James chapter 2. Dean? Thank you. Good morning, Gateway. Can you guys hear me okay? For those of you who don't know me, I am Dean Salami. I've been going to Gateway now for just a little while. I have the distinct pleasure of bringing you today's message. I'm the third leg in this six-man preaching relay. You have to forgive the terminology I use. My daughter's a track star here, and one of the events she runs is the four-by-one. That's four young ladies who have 100 meters to get around the track and finish as quickly as they possibly can. Now, each leg is extremely important. Amanda happens to run the second leg, and she is fast as lightning. She, she shoots down that back straight, and she brings it down the track for the team. Now, my position in this six-man relay has no bearing on how good I am as a preacher or my importance. It's just that I'm number three. It's six of us, and somebody had to be three, and I, that lot fell on me. <laughs> okay? Would you guys join me in prayer, please? Heavenly Father, we're thankful indeed for this opportunity where we can gather together. We can sing praises unto you. We can break open your word. We know, Lord, that there are those of us, those brothers and sisters that are in different parts of the world who don't have this luxury. So I pray, Father God, that we don't take it lightly. Father, as we were singing praises this morning, I was just sitting back and just wondering, when, Lord God, when will you come? I long to see your face. But, Father, I know there's work to be done. Your kingdom has to be advanced. And, Father, we are the instruments by which you use to do that. So today, Lord God, we ask simply that you grant us wisdom. Direct us and guide us, Lord God. Show us how we are to engage the culture. I pray, Father God, that you would grant us wisdom. As we sang that last song, I was reminded, Lord, how weak I truly am. But I know your spirit in me is strong. And so I simply pray, Father God, enable me. Help me to communicate effectively so that I might glorify your name and bless these, your people. I pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. So, let's recap very, very quickly. For those of you who have not been with us for the last few weeks, we are going through a series that is called Faith That Works. Very much like the young ladies running down a track, we're not running down a track, but we are going through the book of James, and that's what this is about. Three weeks ago, Ed started us off, and he made some really, really great points. I like one of the things that he had said. He talked about perspective and how vitally important that is. This was a huge takeaway for me because he reminded us that we're not CEOs, that is, chief executive officers, because we don't have control over the circumstances of our lives. But we are CPOs. We are chief perspective officers because... Perspective is the only thing that helps guide us through the temptations and trials of life, right? We don't get to see what's coming at us, but we do get to react to it. And how we react is vitally important. Now, Ed said a great number of things, but I want you guys to get out of here no later than 1 o'clock, so I'm going to try and be brief, okay? <laughs> Last week, Kevin was up. Kevin's whole deal was production. He said, hey, look, we can't just be about faith and ooh and ah, and it's got to go to work, all right? We have to have faith that is active. He talked about belonging and believing and how that contributes to us exercising our faith. The one thing that I had to really remind myself about was hearing is not all there is. We have got to be about doing. 
But you know, our faith was never designed to operate within a vacuum. It's supposed to be on display. And you know, we probably have no greater stage to display our faith than when we interact with people. So today I want to talk to you a little bit about the power behind what goes on with our faith. And I'm not saying power as in ooh, ah, and Superman kind of thing. I'm talking about the thing that, it's the engine that goes behind it. Okay? When we display our faith with others, they get to learn who we are about and why we're about. But most of all, we get to show them who we serve. And it's a wonderful thing when we do it. But when we do it, that means we can't just act any old way. There's a standard by which we live. When Jesus was asked what the greatest commandment was back in Matthew 22, 37 through 40, he said this, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and prophet hang on these two commandments. Now, the second commandment that the Lord referred to, that's going to be the focus of our lesson today. So if you will, stand with me as we read James 2, 1 through 13. For those of you following along in your copies of God's Word, I am reading from the nearly inspired version. You may know it as the NIV. I tend to use the King James, but uh, we won't go there this morning. Okay. My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing the fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet, have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love them? But you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? If you keep the royal law found in scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said you shall not commit adultery also said you shall not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who is not merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. You may be seated. Loving our neighbors as ourselves. This is James's point. He refers to this as the royal law. This law is supreme because love is the currency of God's kingdom. And love must be extended to all, to those who are part of the kingdom, but most especially to those who are not. We have no other currency with which to trade, but when we understand how important this is, we won't need anything else. As you'll soon see, James underscores the importance of this royal law by showing the dangers of violating it. Since I have no PowerPoint for you this morning, let me share how I'm going to break this passage up. We're going to take a look at the example that James gives us. We're going to talk about how he exposes the error. We're going to talk about the encouragement he gives us. Lastly, we're going to look at his exhortation. Exhortation is just a fancy word for warning. Okay? And after all that, 
I'll give you guys an exercise. Ready? Okay. James starts us off, and he says, My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. James' concept on favoritism is not original. Before I go into the definition of it, uh, you know, God himself first commanded the children of Israel when he rescued them out of Egypt. He talked about this very principle. In Leviticus 19, 33 to 34, he says, When a foreigner resides among you, or a stranger, do not mistreat him. The foreigner residing among you must be treated as your native born. Love them as yourself, for you were foreigners in Egypt. I am the Lord your God. I mean, God is not saying, hey, just love your neighbor just because it's a good thing. He's saying love your neighbor because you were once like them. So if a stranger comes in, Remember what you were and how you were treated, and treat them accordingly. Now, I love this passage, because we see that from the very beginning, for all God's people, God has always imputed this thing of not showing favoritism, okay? So, what is favoritism? Well, the original Greek behind the word, it says the word is respect, being a respecter of persons, or being partial. In other words, favoritism, right? But it's not the favoritism you think. It's not like, hey, I, you know, I like that guy over that guy. It's a little darker than that, okay? It's actually assigning value to an individual or group of people simply because of the face value, because of appearance. And you impart judgment that way. Now, Let's take a look at the example, because if you're like me, I tend to want to see or be able to better understand. You've got to be able to show me what you're talking about. So let's take a look at this example that James gives us for, for favoritism. He says, suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there or sit at my feet, haven't you shown favoritism? Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Here, see what James is talking about. He's saying you're drawing lines of demarcation. This is a big problem, but here's what they're doing. A man who looks good is coming in, and he is being shown favoritism. He's given a great seat. A person who comes in with little dirty clothes, they're saying, hey, you know, you go sit over here. Three things that they're doing. As James said, they're discriminating. They're being demeaning, and they're devious. That deviousness, you're going to be able to learn and see a little later. But those three things. Now, James gives us this in in the context of the church setting. But the principle that we're talking about is relating to people. And there's a standard that we've got to live by. So it's not contained only here at church. Gateway actually does a pretty good job. You know, a few years ago, Ed had... Is Troy here? Ed had Troy Barrett come in, and he was dressed as a homeless person. Let me tell you, he looked the part. He looked like he was not just homeless, but he was born out of dirt, okay? Uh, But the great thing is, you know, we didn't, as a church, we weren't partial to the fact that he was poor. We didn't set him aside or make him sit at our footstool. We actually welcomed him in. And if he were actually homeless, he would have made out like a bandit because we made sure he was well taken care of. So we saw pretty good points there. 
remember that this is really about an issue of relating to folks. So, when we think about relating to folks, if we test ourselves, how are we doing? You know, we live in Washington, D.C. This is probably one of the most emotionally charged areas in the country, maybe even the planet. You can't say much these days without somebody taking some kind of offense, right? But how do we do when we're in those types of situations? How do you react when you deal with someone who has differing political views than you? And they are really fired up about it. How about different religions? People are very passionate about their religion, but if you dare say something against it, well, what happens if someone says something against yours? How do you do? How about people with different sexual orientations? How about those who are lower socioeconomic or economic statuses? What about conflict? Conflict is where I tend to fall down. You know, my wife Althea, uh, we've been married nearly 20 years now. When we first, <laughs> when we first got married, this is where I fell down. Because if we had any type of conflict, I immediately drew a line in the sand. It was now me against her. She's supposed to be my wife. We're supposed to be one flesh, right? But it was immediately me against her. I was discriminating. Right? Because the rules still apply, because this is an issue about relating to folks. Not only was I discriminating, I was demeaning. It was made no way in the world her opinion was anywhere better than mine. Right? And, you know, there was deviousness about that, because it was my selfishness, my pride. I had to win. I had to whatever. It was dumb. I know that now, but back then I didn't. And those types of things have a way of really putting a strain on a relationship, because she wasn't smiling at me too much after those types of engagements, right? So what do we do? How do we really work this principle? Well, let's take a look at the error that James tells us about. He says, hey, look, have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in, in faith and to inherit the kingdom? He promised to those who love him. But you have dishonored the poor. Is not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him who you belong? James gives us a little insight into why his readers may have been behaving in this way. Remember I was telling you about how devious it is? It could be that they were being so oppressed by the rich that they thought that they would be able to find a way out. They thought that maybe if they showed them some favoritism, they can get some relief from this pressure. But the problem with that is, it came at the expense of those who were poor. James puts it this way, hey look, let me help bring to you what you are doing. The ones that God esteems, you despise. The ones you esteem, despises and oppress you. And those same ones, they dishonor God. Now, James says this and he asks a series of questions. The answers are extremely evident. It's apparent. This is ridiculous. The main reason it's ridiculous is because we actually are standing in opposition to God. The very people that he has his eye on, we are treating like dirt. And we can't do that. Here's an example of how ridiculous it is. Um, I'm going to pick on Amanda because Amanda's graduating. Oh, she graduated and she's going off to college. Well, Amanda was, well, oh, by the way, since she's going to graduate, we're going to have a room open. So if anybody needs a room to rent, just let me know, please. <laughs> when Amanda was three, she wanted to go to the pool. She really wanted to go to the pool. She said, Dad, please, let's go to the pool. So she had me, her mom, get her ready. She, we put on her bathing suit. I put on my swimming trunks. 
Althea was ready. We went to the pool. We were ready. I jump in the pool. Amanda, come on, jump in. I'll catch you. No, Daddy. You know her reasoning? I don't want to get wet. <laughs> we're at a pool, right? You came dressed. People get wet at a pool, and you, you don't want to get wet? Well, it's that ridiculous. When we break this principle, it really is that ridiculous. See, we can give Amanda a pass because she was three. But for us, we cannot afford this. It is dangerous. It is so dangerous that we are actually standing in opposition to God. All right. All's not lost. As painful and as ridiculous as that might seem, James is actually trying to encourage us. So look what he says in verse 8. If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. Now, I always want to know, how do I pull something off? Now, we have to remember that James is building here. He made some points in chapter 1 that he wants us to be able to keep in mind as he speaks here. And this is one of them. But I need help because I'm a little thick. So I had to look for someone who would help me to understand what he's really saying a little bit better. And one of my favorite writers in the New Testament is Paul the Apostle. And he has this ridiculous passage in 1 Timothy 1, verse 12 to 15. This brought it home for me. Let me read it for you. I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has given me strength that he considered me trustworthy, appointing me to his service or ministry. Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, along with faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Here's a kicker. Here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. If you know anything about the Apostle Paul, he's responsible for nearly two-thirds of the New Testament. He had gone through a whole lot. I mean, he had three missionary journeys, right? He did a lot of wonderful things. But the thing that got me about this passage is not what he wrote, but when he wrote it. It really got me because this was toward the tail end of Paul's life. He had been in service for the Lord for about 20 to 25 years. And he had written this letter to his young disciple, Timothy. This letter was written about five years prior to Paul's death. But he writes with all of that in mind. He had, like I said, three missionary journeys. He planted a number of churches. He wrote most of the letters that he wrote in the Testament. Most of those were written by this time. He was shipwrecked. He was beaten. He had done a whole lot of things. And toward the end of his life, he says, I'm the worst of all sinners? That bothers me. I mean, come on. All of that stuff that you did and you're the worst of sinners? I can tell you one thing. If that happened to me, y'all couldn't love with me. It was nowhere in the world I'd be letting you forget. I would tell you every time I possibly can about everything that I had to go through. And as the years went by, it would have been embellished. Paul was shipwrecked for about a day and a half in the open sea. If it were me, it would have began. I was, I was floating on the debris, and I was sitting out there in the sea. Ten years later, I'd have been levitating over the water just six minutes, just six inches up. I would have been absolutely ridiculous. But see, that's my problem. Because I try to make myself look good. But Paul teaches me something a little different. Something that's powerful, I think. Listen to what he says. 
I love Paul's introspection. Paul doesn't have any false impression of himself. That's why he's able to say that I'm the worst of sinners. Because he wasn't doing one thing that I tend to do. He wasn't comparing himself with someone else. He was comparing himself to Christ. And when you look at Christ, we all have that label. We are the worst. We're vile. There's nothing that is good in us when we compare it to Christ. That's not the only thing. You know, Ed made mention of it earlier. Paul recognized that the Lord was the instigator of all of this. The Lord was the one that put Paul into ministry. Paul didn't say, hey, you know, I'd like to sign up for ministry. In the, and he was not doing that. He was persecuting the church. So much so that people really did not, I mean, Paul, he was not, he was not a nice guy. He was a violent man. He drug people out of their homes. He broke up families. He was there when people were being stoned. He was violent. But he recognized that this was done because of his ignorance. But I think finally, the thing that really gets me, it's not explicit in what he said, but the thing that really got me is that Paul recognized that he was an instrument. He wasn't instrumental. It was the Lord who was instrumental. He recognized that he was only playing a part. And I think when we talk about this whole issue of loving our neighbors as ourselves, this is what we get out of it. Because when we see other people, when I remember I gave you that list, let's take anyone in that list, someone who is passionate about their political views, or someone who has a different sexual orientation. They're sin-bent, that's how it's expressed. But it shouldn't be a surprise to me, because like Paul told the, the Israelites, I used to be there. They are what I used to be. So I don't have a right to judge them. The best I can do is offer what God has offered me. Right? Not only was it that he recognized he was just an instrument and that he can relate to them in that way. He helps us to see that this is not something that is so foreign to us that we can't really begin to connect with folks. The reason that they deal the way they deal is because they're sin patterns. Our sin patterns are no different. And so we can reach out to them and be that instrument that God uses to help them. God loves them in such a way that he uses us broken folks to go reach out to broken folks. You know, another organization that really embodies this is AA. You have people who used to deal or have a, a dependence on alcohol. They are the ones ministering to the people who do have it now. And what do they do? They walk alongside them so that they'll be able to break that addiction. We have a far greater calling on our lives. Our calling is such that we not only get to help people break some of their sin patterns, but we introduce them to the one who helped to make them. So they get connected to their designer. And what a powerful thing that is. But we can't afford to break this very, very important rule. Follow so far? Say yes? Okay, okay. <laughs> now, if the error that he exposes and the example that he gives and the encouragement that he helps us to see, if that's not enough, Paul then takes him down to the exhortation. In other words, a warning. And it's not to be taken lightly. But if you show favoritism, he says, you sin are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said you shall not commit adultery also said you shall not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. 
Mercy triumphs over judgment. This is the most blunt James has been so far. He's basically saying if you show favoritism, you have sinned and are guilty of being a lawbreaker. Here's the danger in this. If you do not follow the royal law, which love is the spirit behind it, then your actions must be weighed. There's a checklist. Anything short of perfection will not be tolerated. Your reward under these circumstances is condemnation. No excuses will be given because none will be heard. So James encourages us again, hey, look, speak and act as those who are going to live by the royal law. In this point, he's saying it's the law of the liberty. Why the law of liberty? Because when love is the thing that you use, when love is the lead in this thing, it brings freedom because it looks for the benefit of the individual. It looks at the whole of the individual. Whereas if you try to find fault when you judge, the only thing that you're trying to do for that individual is to condemn them or destroy them. It does not assign value to you because of what you look like or even what you do. It values you for what you actually are, created in God's image, and allows God to redeem you from your sin, giving you freedom to be what he designed you to be. James reminds us that judgment you use will be used on you. If you judge people and show no mercy, no mercy will be shown to you. If that's not scary enough for you, I'm not sure what is. God is going to use the measurement that we use to judge folks. He's going to turn it back on us. That's standing before God. Now, there's a real-time judgment in this as well, too. Have you ever run across people who have been judged by those in the church before? One of their first responses is, oh, I don't want to go to church. Those people are hypocritical. They're judgmental. What do you think happened to them? The people who knew Christ, who said that they were Christians, they didn't live by this principle. And because they didn't live this, by this principle, they hurt others. And in the hurting, they not only dishonored God, but they made it difficult for then that person to be able to accept what God has offered. This underscores how vitally important it is for us to live by the royal law. For it is the standard of, for our relationships. It shows mercy which is not giving us what we deserve. That's what mercy is, not giving us what we deserve for the preservation of the individual. Judgment is all about condemnation, and it's designed to destroy the person. It's easy to see why mercy triumphs over judgment in God's order, because he loves people. And the faith that works must work to love our neighbors as ourselves. Okay, you may ask yourself, why is this that important? Well, you know, we're looking to build a building. And our building, we hope and pray, is going to be a place where people will come to find hope. It will never be that if we violate this law. That's how critically important it is. We don't want to have to answer to God for breaking this. I know for me, I've got enough to answer to God for, so <laughs> I'm not trying to add this to it. As we're building this, we're going to be the ones that are the front runners. We're going to be the ones out there making it happen. We're going to be those first representatives that people see, and we're going to be the ones that begin to bridge the gap between God and these individuals through the power of Jesus Christ because they should get to see it through us. And so it's critically important that we get this. Now, you know, the whole theme of this is faith that works, right? So it's not enough for me to just give you something for you to chew on. Of course, I want you to chew on it. Are you guys ready for an exercise? <laughs> okay. This whole passage, I want you to be able to take the time out to meditate. 
But there are two other things that I'd like for you to do. Ask two or three people that are near you, who are close to you. Ask them if they see this violation of this principle. Ask them if they see it in you. Second thing, why don't you find that individual who is passionate about something that you don't agree with, or maybe has an alternate lifestyle? Why don't you take those individuals out to dinner? Just grab one or two. Take them out to dinner. See where they are. Learn about them. Hear their story. It'd be interesting, I think, what you find. I'll be honest with you. The alternate lifestyle thing, that was one of my biggest deals. Because we had people who had different sexual orientations at an office that I was at. And God impressed this thing on me one time. And I actually started to get to know them. And a funny thing happened to me. I fell in love with those guys. I don't know what happened. When I put my own ridiculous mentalities aside, I began to see them for what God made them to be. People created in God's image. And I extended the hand of fellowship with the hopes that they might find that connection with God. I hope and pray that when you go through your exercise, you might find that same type of connection. Because it's powerful. When you see it, you're going to want more of it. And I really hope that that's what we do, because we don't have enough people in these seats. There's too many empty seats up here. We have to start thinking about our time on Sundays like a family reunion. And we're out there every single week. We're sharing our faith. We're putting it to work. We're doing what God is calling us to do, making inroads into the uh, society. We should see that as building our family. And each week, we should be looking forward to finding and seeing new faces because we see that the kingdom of God is growing. Now, that is your mission should you choose to accept it. All right. I'm done, so let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this time. I pray, Father, for whatever things that I have said, that if anything is not in keeping with your will, Lord, that you strike it from the minds and hearts of your people. But if there be any truth, Lord God, cement that in in them even now. We're grateful for this opportunity, Lord God, because it's a reminder for us what we need to be doing, what our focus ought to be. I pray, Father, that you would bless it for those ears and those hearts that it's meant for. Solidify it again, I pray. I ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.